You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader and I'm here with Will Doran, Craig Jarvis, and Colin Campbell, all of the news and observer. Uh, Today we'll talk about HB2 and a possible compromise, depending on who you talk to. And we'll talk about some of the other action in the legislature. Uh, And we'll, of course, talk about headliner of the week. Uh, But first, to start with HB2, Craig, uh, you reported on a compromise proposal from Cooper, uh, from Governor Roy Cooper. Uh, What does that do? Well, it may not do anything because nothing seems to be happening other than a lot of back and forth fiery language. And I'm starting to lose faith that anything at all is going to happen. But that was just my little aside. I thought I'd slip in there. What that what that would do, Roy Cooper, Governor Cooper on Tuesday called a press conference to propose what he called a uh, compromise HB2 bill, which would do three things. It would get rid of HB2, which everybody seems, I mean, not everybody, but a majority of people of the players want to get rid of HB2, and then tries to address two other issues. One is um, a third, it would require cities and counties, local governments to give 30-day notice before they took up any kind of uh, discrimination ordinance. And that's so there was some concern that Charlotte or Greensboro or somebody might just turn around and do, you know, enact a repeat right off the bat. And uh, anyway, so that there's that. Then the third thing is um, bathroom penalties, penalties, increased penalties uh, is sort of Democrats portrayed that as a uh, as kind of a bone. They they they're not usually. Dan Blue said, "I'm not usually willing to uh, increase penalties for offenses across the board, but in this case, we're willing to offer that up as a compromise." So, so what did the Republicans have to have to say in response to this? They had been pushing for Cooper to offer some kind of a, right. a compromise that uh, he thought Republicans could get behind and saying, "Oh, the ball is in his court." Yeah, they don't like it, and it just sort of sets up this. You know, it seemed politically, it seems like the the, the strategy the strategies are the Republicans kind of pummel away at the governor for not doing anything. The governor is trying to stay out in front by saying, "I'm proposing this, I'm proposing that. I'm you know, I'm the only one that is trying to solve this problem." Republican reaction was they call it a quote so-called compromise. Uh, later in the day, uh, Senator Phil Berger fielded a few questions that I don't see any difference between this and what he said in December. This is not a compromise, you know, and he's got a he needs to be his feet need to be held at the fire about what just what he would favor. Would he favor an ordinance like Charlotte had that would allow this bathroom access or not? And um, so they're they're both trying to volley it, put it in you know each other's court. So what about the uh, act, what about the groups on the other side, the LGBT groups? They didn't like it either. No, which put the, the governor, I guess, in an awkward position. The Human Rights Commission or the Human Rights Campaign and Equality NC called press conferences to say we're not giving up an inch. We need only simply a repeal and, and with no you know strings attached, and uh, we're not willing to back down off that. I guess there was some speculation that maybe this was somehow coordinated. That I guess. The theory there being uh, to make it look like Cooper was more middle of the road with this because the, this sort of setting up this straw man fringe group gives Cooper a little cover. But uh, they've been consistent all along. Their only interest in this is is repealing HB2. So I don't know. And that's why they had their own version of the bill last week that had Equality NC and, and Human Rights Campaign behind it. Uh, that was not only repealing HB2, but creating a statewide non-discrimination law that included 
bathroom access. So in a sense, was almost the Charlotte ordinance, but taken statewide. And so that's clearly the policy proposal they want. That has even less of a chance in the Republican-dominated legislature uh, than what Cooper has proposed. Um, so that's kind of a it's a tilting at windmills sort of thing, but they're very clear that, you know, this is what they want, and they're not not going to really compromise going that direction. And by the end of the day, Tuesday, I think a lot of us just felt like this. there just isn't going to be a compromise. We're not seeing people really— Yeah, I just don't—I yeah. mean, I think the attempt at a compromise back in December was probably the best shot they had. Uh, Cooper tried again to try to sort of move the needle more towards the middle— and pretty quickly got shot down. There wasn't even a sense that it was going to be considered. And when I talked to, to Speaker Tim Moore this week, I kind of asked, so what, what does a good compromise look like to you? And he really didn't offer any uh, specifics. So there's really, the Republicans aren't putting out something and saying, this is what we want, and then waiting for Cooper to agree to it. They're not really giving him anything to work with. So to me, it it suggests that they're, it's not a priority for them. That they're probably not going to get rid of HB2 in any meaningful sense any time in the near future. Yeah, it just seems like the members are running away from it as far as possible whenever it comes up. They're, what what structure might have been in place to, to repeal it back in December just doesn't seem to be there now. So, Colin, you mentioned that there are some other proposals out there, and it seems like the one that Democrats are most the most Democrats are getting behind is this one from Human yeah, Rights Yeah, at least on right? the House side, there was uh, about a dozen or so Democrats that had signed on to that idea of the statewide non-discrimination law uh, in that particular bill. So there's that bill, uh, but again, that doesn't really have much chance of passage, and it's not what uh, Cooper is getting on board with. Cooper's bill has support from the House Democratic leader, Darren Jackson, and uh, the Senate Minority Leader, Dan Blue, both of whom uh, attended the press conference with Cooper this week. Uh, they filed his bill in uh, both of the chambers uh, this week. I think it's already been sent to the Rules Committee, which is oftentimes where bills go to die. Uh, uh, both Berger and Moore have said they're not really going to take that one up. Um, there's another proposal out there that's kind of a, a mix between the two. It's uh, Cecil Brockman's bill uh, in the House. That one does the statewide non-discrimination law, but it also has the increased penalties for bathroom crimes, which I think is pretty much identical what, to what was in the, the Cooper proposal. And then there's one other bill that was, the, I think, the first repeal effort that was filed uh, several weeks ago by Senator Jeff Jackson of Charlotte, uh, which is just a straight-up repeal, and it would, uh, I think, bring back the non-discrimination ordinances that local governments had prior to HB2. That also doesn't seem like that's going anywhere um, Certainly this idea of the moratorium, which was what was proposed uh, back in December, if you'll recall, that was the idea that for six months, um, local governments could not pass any sort of non-discrimination ordinances, which was viewed as uh, an extension of HB2 by some of the opponents and, and thought that was a non-starter. We haven't seen anything along those lines, although there was the 30-day the notice period in, in Cooper's bill, which was sort of a softened version of that, but that doesn't seem to go anywhere. So again, it just it doesn't seem like there's any ideas out there that, that both sides are going to agree on. The only possibility here is that these are negotiating positions. Uh, Cooper was asked a couple of times, well, what, how much are you willing to give on some of these things, like the 30-day the notice? And he said, I'm not going to negotiate in the media. We're certainly open to, to, to sitting down and solving this. And we've certainly seen that in the past on other issues uh, where it looks like they're intractable. But you know, behind closed doors, two or three or six people are uh, trying to work out some possible give and take. So that's possible. And this is the fascinating part about this, was he says that about not negotiating the media, and then we find out after his 
press conference this week that uh, the head of the House and Senate were claiming this was the first they had seen this particular proposal, which makes you wonder if this is sort of what what he's putting out there publicly as this is my position, but then behind closed doors, they may be having a wide range of discussions about different possibilities that could surface later on. Uh, I, I will note that uh, when I talked to Tim Moore this week, he mentioned that uh, there are still discussions going on among both Democrats and Republicans in the House uh, to look at some way to, to resolve HB2. I think the question is, if a bill comes up, will it satisfy um, the people who are boycotting the state economically? Is any sort of compromise they come up with going to satisfy the NCAA, the NBA, the ACC? Uh, because it's probably not going to be a straight-up full repeal. Um, that seem, much seems pretty clear that Republicans aren't necessarily willing to go with that. And anything short of a straight-up repeal is not going to have support from Human Rights Campaign and Equality NC. And those are the groups that are pushing these major companies, these sports leagues, to stay away from North Carolina. So that's going to uh, be really interesting to see if, if you get the, the sports guys on board with whatever a compromise might be, if one ever comes about. And I wonder at what point is it too late for the uh, NCAA? I mean, yeah. we, we had reported, I think, uh, uh, was on Monday of last week that uh, yeah, it was like they two were, or three weeks away. Yeah, and it, and I, I think, think realistically they, they s- might have through April, but it just depends how you know if suddenly all of our applications get thrown back into the pool. If on say March fifteenth there's a repeal that the NCAA likes, or if they've already too far down the the pipeline with putting the event in Virginia or South Carolina or Georgia or wherever. Um, so there's there's some uncertainty surrounding that, but I think there is probably some time available. I did see, uh, I guess, uh, the governor just this morning posted an article on this Medium website where he has been going occasionally to offer long-form uh, takes on, on different issues and, again, pushing, hey, we are going to lose these sporting events if you don't act. So there's uh, the deadline pressure is there. Whether anyone feels it behind closed doors is kind of unclear. Well, uh, Will, the pressure on the other side is from social conservatives who uh, say that uh, there should should not be a compromise, that HB2 should uh, stay in place, and uh, that it's a matter of bathroom safety. Uh, and their most high-profile uh, proponent is, uh, is the lieutenant governor of the state, is Dan Forrest. And so w- what did he have to say about uh, Cooper's compromise proposal? Uh, yeah, Dan Forrest, he came out uh, very strongly um, when, when Cooper made his proposal. He said that um, if it passes, it would create a state-sanctioned look-but-don't-touch bathroom policy uh, throughout North Carolina. And uh, we at PolitiFact rated that as pants on fire. There's not really a, a basis sound effect for that. For that we for should get one. Yeah. We should get one. I don't know what a flaming roaring, pants sound like. Roaring but. fire. <laughs> Some buttons <laughs> popping. Yeah. But yeah, um, you know, you, you look at it and um, uh, basically, you know, uh, Forrest, he had a very kind of uh, long, detailed scenario that he went into. Um, I don't remember it exactly. It's five or six sentences long. You can go on the website and read the whole thing. But basically it hinged on the idea that uh, Cooper was proposing um, a transgender bathroom ordinance statewide. And uh, that is obviously not true. As you all just noted, there are a couple bills that have proposed that, but uh, Cooper's proposal never included that. He just wanted to kind of return to, you know, kind of what we had between, you know, basically 1776 and 2015, <laughs> um, where there were just no rules at all on bathrooms, and it was just kind of a, uh, you know, 
case by case basis uh, in so terms of it, what laws could apply. And so, what does he say when you asked his people about right. what he meant? What is what do they say? So they said that they believe that you know if HB two is repealed uh, as Cooper has proposed in his bill, that uh, local governments will go on and you know pass uh, bathroom ordinances of their own and. Um, that doesn't really back up the argument for a couple of different reasons. Uh, one, that wouldn't be state-sanctioned; that would be a local decision, and it would, you know, obviously, if a char- if a city like Charlotte or Durham passes an ordinance, that's not going to apply statewide. Um, so that doesn't really, you know, there's not really much logic there. And then he also uh, Forrest also had a couple. Uh, he, well, he he specifically listed two different scenarios that he was concerned about. One, which was um, men being able to go into bathrooms and shower or undress in front of women uh, and no legal protections for the women, no consequences for the men. Um, That is just uh, not really based in reality, um, whether or not there's a transgender bathroom ordinance or not. Um, You know, we have an indecent exposure law here in North Carolina and, uh, you know, it, it says that if you expose yourself in front of anyone, you know, unless it's in a, you know, somewhere like a gym and only in front of people of the same sex, then you can be charged with a crime. Um, so that doesn't really hold any water. And then he also had a, uh, a scenario in which case, uh, it didn't involve a naked man, just a man in a bathroom or locker room watching people. Um, but again, in that case, uh, talked to, you know, a UNC law professor, he said, you know, trespassing laws apply, uh, Breaking and entering could apply. Uh, there was a case in Greenville a few years ago um, that was actually upheld by the Court of Appeals, uh, in which case they did convict someone of trespassing. Um, the person in that case was also uh, charged with secret peeping, which is another law um, that could apply in situations like this, although he wasn't convicted ultimately. So really, I mean, if you just kind of go down, you know, there's a whole laundry list of laws that apply in situations like this and not really any basis to force claim. Which is is not to say that uh, it's a certainty that somebody would be convicted, I suppose. But his his claim was very specific that there are no legal protections at all for right. for this. Right. Right. And we we went through and found at least a half a dozen different laws that could very well serve as legal protections. Um, so yeah, there was just really kind of no uh, no reality uh, <laughs> to his claim, and it pants on fire. All right. All right. Well, that's probably enough about HB two and uh, and uh, bathrooms for uh, one day for one week. Uh, unless there's anything else to add on that, I think we'll uh, take a break and come back and talk about what else the legislature did this week. Stay with us. Did you know that North Carolina judges used to ride on horseback across the state to deliver justice? Today, there are more than one thousand judicial representatives in our state. And through the NCAOC Speakers Bureau, you can request to have a representative speak at your event. Representatives are ready to inform your community about the importance of the North Carolina judicial system, and their visits are completely free. We can't promise they'll show up on a horse, though. Visit celebrate.ncourts.org to request a speaker for your event. And welcome back to Domecast. Again, this is Jordan Schrader with Colin Campbell, Craig Jarvis, and Will Doran of the NNO. Uh, so the legislature started uh, moving some bills this week, and Colin, uh, the House was uh, sort of the side that was busy 
um, passing a number of things. Um, one of them is this interesting uh, idea about class size. They passed sort of a little noticed uh, measure last year that restricts that puts a mandate on class size, and they're rolling it back now, right? Yeah. So this would have dropped the uh, maximum number of students you could have in an elementary school class. Uh, fairly sharply starting with the school year that starts this fall. Uh, School districts cried foul on that. They basically said, hey, you're not giving us more money. And so we use some of that money uh, to go towards uh, arts and PE classes. If you make us uh, drop the class sizes, we're going to have to have more classroom teachers, which means we're going to have to get rid of some of these arts electives. Uh, So that prompted the legislature to say, hey, we didn't realize the unintended consequences of this. Let's back off a little bit. And so now they've passed this bill through the House that... um, Essentially, it's a compromise between uh, the current class size caps and the proposal that was out there, um, or the law that was out there, uh, to go into effect next year. So that should soften the financial blow for a lot of the school districts that were looking at um, being having millions of dollars to, to figure out uh, how to fill um, over the next couple of years. Uh, that passed unanimously out of the House uh, with a little bit of griping from Democrats. Uh, Representative Darren Jackson, who's the House Democratic leader, he ended up voting for this, but he gave a speech about essentially how you're, you've got sort of a no-win situation that uh, no matter what happens, you know, you, you pass the bill, then you have larger classes. Uh, but really what they should be doing is just funding education more so that you could have lower classes. And then he sort of went on a riff about tax cuts under Republicans and sort of the spending priorities that uh, you know, caused a few people to be a little unhappy with his uh, his speech in the, the House, but uh, ultimately didn't affect the actual vote. Hey, did I read in our news partners at The Insider that he uh, talked about Captain Kirk as part of that? Yeah, he um, he dropped some Star Trek references to something, some kind of test where you can't win the I believe the te- it was the Kobayashi oh. Maru test. Okay. I, I've, I, ah, I'm not a Star you know Trek person. Well, <laughs> Thank goodness. Really. I was hoping somebody would. Uh, I, I might be totally butchering that pronunciation, and, you know, my my email inbox might soon be filled with people, you know, telling me I'm not a good enough nerd. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I think it's... Uh, from our uh, our in-house education reporter uh, Kern Huey, who is also a big Star Trek person, it's yeah. He was tweeting the meeting, and he clearly followed uh, Representative Jackson's analogy far better than I did. Yeah, it's it's something from I think the Wrath of Khan movie, um, where it's just a uh, you know a scenario in which you you can never win no matter what you do. You know, in Star Trek, I think no matter what you do, people die. I don't think uh, that's necessarily yeah. the case with uh, the yeah. NCGA, but. Yeah, it was an interesting uh, reference, and uh, I, was, I was a little bit disappointed that the legislature's uh, preeminent Star Wars fan, uh, Representative Jason Sane, who's a Republican, uh, did not end up piping in with an, an alternative um, analogy to perhaps Star Wars that was, was more supportive of the Republican agenda. But I don't know if, uh, if he was not on the floor or just didn't have one ready to go. But. I think the morality of Star Wars is a little more black and white than in Star Trek. Star That's Trek's kind of nuanced like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so uh, not as uh, not as interesting as that, but we have a uh, <laughs> we another thing that the House did this week. Colin was uh, passed their bill requiring uh, the state to set aside more money uh, for a rainy day. So what happened there? Yeah. So that's a bill that um, basically would change the requirements for putting together the budget. Currently, 
uh, the budget writers get to decide how much money they want to put into savings every year. Sometimes they put a lot in, sometimes they don't put very much, sometimes the budget's really tight and they can't put anything in there. Uh, this would require that a percentage of the revenue growth over the previous year uh, be put into savings, and then it has some stipulations on how the savings could be spent. It has to be for certain purposes, and if it's not for uh, specific purposes like disaster relief or uh, coming up with some shortfall sort of issues when revenue is declining, uh, you would have to have a, a two-thirds majority of the uh, of both chambers to spend the money. Uh, that passed pretty overwhelmingly with a good bit of uh, Democratic support. There were a few folks who Three total Democrats who voted no in the House. Uh, one was based on the basis that it's a separation of powers issue. If you essentially tell the governor that this has to be part of their budget uh, going forward. Uh, the other argument was that uh, we needed to be setting aside money for climate change, which seemed a little bit off topic. But um, and then I think probably someone to make a joke later about uh, this bill has nothing to do like with climate change. Right. But uh yeah, a shout out to climate change was made on the House this week, which was uh, notable. Um, but otherwise, yeah, it, it cleared through pretty quickly. Uh, now heads to the Senate, where it's expected to have some support as well. Okay, and I should have asked that class size bill. Is that going to go anywhere in the Senate? Um, that's the interesting one with the Senate. Um, so the the similar version of the class size bill was actually proposed back in the special session in December when they were doing all that stuff to uh, restrict the governor's powers. They also looked at uh, sort of fixing this little issue that they had created with class size. That passed the House then. The Senate didn't take it up, and the Senate hasn't really said whether the reason they took it up didn't take it up then was they disagreed with it or they just didn't have time in a two-day special session. Um, so that'll be interesting to watch for. There's a, a blog from a group called Carolina Partnership for Reform uh, that has some ties to Senate leadership. Uh, oftentimes you'll see uh, Senate Leader Phil Berger tweeting links to this blog. Uh, they've posted recently about they feel like this is a trap for Republicans to get Republicans to vote for higher class sizes that will then come back to bite them in the next election. Um, I'm not sure I see that happening, given that Democrats have supported this bill. So it would be hard for Democrats to say this is a bad bill because if the Democrats voted for it. But it'll be interesting to see if that doesn't give the Senate a little bit more hesitation about taking up this bill. So far, they really haven't said what the plan is when this gets to the Senate. And we're seeing the beginnings maybe of another uh, um, dispute between the Senate and the House over constitutional amendments, right? Last year, that kind of uh, they, they went down to the wire about whether they would pass any amendments to the Constitution, and we're seeing some of those repeated. Yeah, so the, uh, this is the maybe fourth or fifth time is pops possibly the charm for eminent domain. The House, uh, almost without fail every two years uh, and has for, for some time now, passed a bill that would um, propose a constitutional amendment limiting imminent domain seizing of gov property by government uh, to public purposes, things like roads or government buildings or utility infrastructure. So you couldn't take somebody's land as the government and then turn around and hand it to a private developer because you think the private developer's got a better idea for what to do with the land. Um, that is a proposal that would then go to the voters as a constitutional amendment. Uh, it passed the House Again, almost every two years, the Senate has not taken much action on it, except last year they did, but they sent it back to the House in the form of this like trifecta of constitutional amendments. One was about the right to hunt and fish. The other was uh, a, a more substantive one about uh, capping the level of income tax rates in North Carolina to 5.5%, uh, which is actually something that the Senate has uh, filed a bill to do again this year. Um, the House did not agree to do the trifecta version last year, uh, so that ended up, all of those died. 
we didn't do the tax constitutional amendment. We didn't do the uh, the eminent domain one. Um, so now the question is this year. And no one can hunt or fish now. Right? Yeah, I'm sure the you know, their rights are being infringed or on left and right because it's not in the Constitution. But at any rate, uh, it will be interesting to see if, if the House and Senate can agree this year on uh, what things should go in our Constitution and what things don't need to be there because that's been uh, a long-going uh, dispute between the two of them, and they have yet to make a deal that both sides like. Okay. Uh, and Craig, over in the Senate, it seems like the main action is cabinet confirmations, which uh, maybe can go forward after a court ruling this week, right? I uh, can't really say. Uh, <laughs> there was a development. Uh, this is that ongoing dispute over, again, separation of powers, this particular piece of it having to do with the Senate saying they should give final uh, up or down votes to the governor's cabinet choices. Um that process has been on hold because of the uh, Cooper got a temporary restraining order. So this week, the, uh, the three-judge panel dissolved that temporary restraining order, which uh, the Senate Republicans said, that's a victory. We're just going to go right ahead then and re- redraw our schedule. There were two or three that didn't happen because this thing was up in the air. They had already laid out a two-month schedule. Uh, so they saw that as a win for them. And because this is the way lawyers are, Cooper's also thought the ruling was a win for him uh, because it said clearly he doesn't have to, uh, the, the ruling said clearly the governor has until May 15th to submit names to begin the process. Uh, Berger says that's ludicrous. He's begun. He's he has chosen eight of 10 people to be cabinet secretaries. He's sworn them in. They're getting paid. They're in the job. Those are, are you going to tell me those aren't the nominees? Uh, but uh, Cooper has on his side this very clear ruling, which says he doesn't have to uh, start that process till the middle of May. Does the Senate uh, have any plans to appeal that ruling? or anything? I have not heard that uh, at all, and I wonder how that will play out. I think they are just planning to go ahead and start uh, you know, resume the hearings, and once again, I guess as happened with Larry Hall, they yeah. just won't show up. Yeah, they have because with the Larry Hall one last week, they they had the meeting, uh, they had a little nameplate for him and waited around for ten or fifteen minutes just in case he was stuck in traffic. And uh, I wonder if they're going to do that with the remaining members of the cabinet because that could get pretty tedious for a while if we kept having to go to cabinet hearings kind where the cabinet circus. appointees aren't aren't planning to attend. Yeah, I would think after the second time when they're when it's clear that they're not stuck in traffic, they're just sitting, you know, in the administration building with Cooper keeping an eye on them, um that that probably is kind of futile to continue I was kind of surprised to see Larry Hall show up to the uh legislature this week. Uh he was mingling around the house one day and uh I realized the reason he was there was that there's a new um appointed uh, person for his seat in Durham who was getting sworn in. But mm. I, I kind of wondered if it was dangerous for him to be in the building if, if Phil Berger wouldn't like grab him and pull him into a hearing room somewhere to uh, start the confirmation process. Oh, just on the spot? Yeah, well, yeah. maybe. That, uh, we, we could see. So, uh, But these cabinet members, if they didn't, weren't expecting a, uh, expecting a tough go of it, they're, get, they're getting that and they're getting the scrutiny that comes along with it. Uh, um, they uh, each of the, uh, the the ethics commission kind of took a look at all a cursory look at all the uh, appointees this week, or not just this week over the last few weeks, and uh, pretty much concluded that none of them have any any uh, conflicts that would prevent them from holding office. Although it did say we found in four cases people whose previous employment sort of raises 
you know, be on the guard against against this kind of thing. Um, those were people like the Health and Human Services Secretary, Dr. Mandy Cohen, used to work for the feds uh, and Medicare division, and uh, Michael Reagan, the Environmental Secretary, used to work for the Environmental Defense Fund, and that kind of thing, They're, where they just have to exercise caution uh, to make sure there is no conflict. But it's kind of a routine thing. I mean, the reason people are chosen often when it's not just because they're a good fundraiser for these head positions is because they come from a background of, uh, you know, a particular expertise. And so that background presents a potential for conflict all the time. Well, uh, Will, you wrote about this week about legislative pay. Uh, we talked a little bit about this on the last podcast, but uh, bring us up to speed. Uh, what did you find when you looked a little deeper into uh, the legislators per diem and other um, compensation? Yeah, well, we have to uh, give some credit to our colleague Lynn Bonner, who isn't on the podcast today. But uh, at the last one, she brought up the fact that um, some uh, some professors from UNC and Duke had recently done a study on legislative pay. Um, and so I went and found that study, looked it up, and it was really interesting. Um, when I originally wrote the story, I had a lot of people, um, you know, lobbyists, legislative staffers, and also just kind of normal people uh, tweeting that, uh, or, you know, on Facebook saying that it seemed like a, a good idea that if you pay legislators more, that's going to encourage more middle class, working class, even low income people to run for office and to get involved in politics and you will have a lawmaking body that is at least less dominated by wealthy people and retirees, which is often a criticism that all state legislatures face. These researchers looked into that um, and they looked at uh, data from the 70s, from the 90s, from uh, the mid 2000s, and then even a questionnaire, I think of like 10,000 political candidates from 2012, to kind of look into people's backgrounds and uh, correlate it with legislative pay. And they found that actually, uh, higher legislative pay doesn't really have any sort of correlation with a more uh, class diverse uh, group of politicians or even political candidates. Um, basically, what happens is that if you raise pay, it uh, makes it more appealing to people who are white-collar professionals, you know, lawyers, doctors, people like that. And so you actually get increased competition from them, and, uh, you know, it really doesn't end up, uh, you know, bringing any more working-class people in. They did find, or at least point to a couple other interesting findings, though, of what increased pe- <laughs> increased pay does do. It uh, They said it makes legislators more kind of ideologically in step with their constituents. It makes them more likely to show up for votes. It makes them more likely to sponsor bills. Um, and it makes uh, them more likely to run for re-election, but also more likely to face competition for re-election. Um, which is interesting, that kind of ties into something that uh, we looked into several months ago for PolitiFact, um, a statement that half of uh, our legislators were unopposed this past fall uh, due to gerrymandering, and we actually found that statement to be mostly true. Um, it, it is just about half, and gerrymandering isn't the only reason, but it's, uh, it's certainly one reason, and maybe the state's low legislative pay is... You know, another reason, we do pay our legislators far less than uh, most other states do. Has anybody else looked into this and uh, come to any different conclusions about uh, whether paying people more would help? Yeah, the uh, it, 
if you talk to the National Conference of State Legislators, which is, you know, uh, obviously biased, you can tell by their name, uh, it's a, you know, kind of a, a trade group for uh, state lawmakers, uh, they say that uh, the opposite of what this study found, that it's their experience that higher pay does lead to more diverse candidates and, um, you know, that it, it helps kind of, you know, create a more representative lawmaking body. Um, so there is definitely disagreement. And even these these uh, researchers uh, from UNC and Duke who found this kind of contrary study, they, they noted that, you know, this is kind of early on, a lot more research is needed. This isn't necessarily the end-all be-all. Um, you know, I, I don't know enough about academia to know if that's just, you know, kind of... Uh, something that you always put in your study <laughs> or if uh, or if they're being pretty cautious but okay okay well unless anybody else uh, wants to weigh in on uh, the compensation of our honorables uh that's probably it for uh, now Ooh, we'll did, take a break i did find one interesting thing that i should note when i was yes. looking that up um so we north carolina if if this bill that's being considered uh passes to raise our legislators mileage reimbursement and uh per diems passes, it'll bring us pretty much in line with averages. Right now, we make the basically the lowest mileage uh, in the country. And one thing I did note that was kind of funny when I was looking this up, Texas actually gives its legislators mileage reimbursements for their private planes. Um, so I don't believe that's Everything's bigger. bigger. <laughs> I like the, same joke, same time. Nice. <laughs> so I don't think that's anything we're considering at the moment, but uh, that, that, that would be interesting, uh, especially considering, you know, uh, some of our uh, politicians' history with uh, private planes and <laughs> the duties of state government. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks. Well, we'll uh, take a quick break and we'll be back with Headliner of the Week. Your headliner of the week. Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Headliner of the week. And it is time for headliner of the week, where we talk about uh, the most important or influential person, or uh, in the case of last week, animal in uh, uh, politics this week. By the way, uh, I should have we should have mentioned in the the podcast that our last week's headliner of the week. Uh, did not meet a uh, a good fate. Uh, unless anybody's going to use this again for headliner of the week, I no, I figure I can only here. win with lap dogs once. Yeah, so um, we we had lap dogs as our headliner of the week, and uh, uh, because of a bill on that, and uh, the sponsor pulled the bill, right? Yeah, uh, Representative Garland Pierce, a Democrat from Scotland County, who'd proposed that, apparently got a lot of calls, and a lot of them were not very pleasant calls. That were not uh, pet donors and others who were not fans of his bill, uh, which so was he, a proposed ban with driving with an animal yeah, in your lap. Yeah, so uh, when you're driving around with your dog, they have to stay in the passenger seat and, and not get behind the wheel. Um, he sort of viewed that as a distracted driving thing. So instead of uh, of going with that proposal, he's going to propose a study of distracted driving issues, uh, not just limited to pets. Uh, so apparently uh, outcry can work if you're um, opposing a, a Democrat who has proposed a quirky bill. So is winning headliner kind of like the the Sports Illustrated curse? Yeah, it's it's the kiss of death. If if, if your uh, if your bill is the headliner of the week, uh, it will probably go down in flames within the next week. Um, so I'm probably going to get lots of requests to make HB two my headliner of the week now. We should do a statistical analysis of all the different headliners and what fate befell them. Okay, Colin, uh, while you're at it, uh, who's your headliner this week? Well, I'm not drifting too far from the animal world. I'm going with uh, fried chicken this week, uh, which was the subject of much uh, conversation and laughter at the uh, the legislature 
there was a bill filed by a couple of lawmakers from Fayetteville uh, wanting to create the official state uh, fried chicken festival in Fayetteville. Uh, we get these bills a lot. There's um, a lot of festivals around the state, and a lot of them want to be the official whatever festival. Um, the interesting thing about the Fayetteville one is that there's not actually a fried chicken festival in Fayetteville, nor is Fayetteville known for its fried chicken on any level. I talked to uh, my colleague Paul Wolverton, who works for the Fayetteville Observer, and, and asked him what the fried chicken scene was like in Fayetteville, and he didn't have much to, to offer me. So Bojangles. Uh, this festival, yeah, Bojangles, maybe some KFC. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so this bill is apparently a little bit premature because there is a guy trying to start a fried chicken festival in Fayetteville, uh, but it has not started it yet, and it won't start till 2018. But they filed this bill um, and uh, generated some laughter on the House floor because uh, every bill has to be assigned to a committee by the Speaker of the House when it's first introduced. And uh, after initially referring this fried chicken bill to the Committee on Local Government, he, uh, Speaker Tim Moore jokingly uh, sent it to the Committee on Health. <laughs> All right. Where, uh, where one of our former colleagues joked that it will probably turn into a grilled tilapia festival bill. <laughs> well, fried chicken in the hat for headliner of the week. And uh, we should say the, they uh, do not yet have this festival in Fayetteville, but uh, they do have a uh, poultry festival of some kind in another town. Yeah, Rose Hill, Rose which Hill. is uh, apparently known for the biggest, world's largest frying pan. You may have stopped on the way to the beach to gawk at this. Um, apparently they cook chicken in the giant frying pan, according to uh, the knows Chris Chaffee, who is, is looking into this, and, and you may get to see a great story about this uh, poultry-related festival controversy over the weekend. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you know, if I were down in Rose Hill and uh, we had the only uh, fried chicken festival and, and uh, a giant somebody else frying was looking pan in which to fry the to, fried chicken. Yeah, and look, somebody else was looking to steal our uh, our, our fried chicken dominance. Yeah, you know, and this I is it's fighting words. I mean, we have two liver mush festivals and two watermelon festivals, and I I hear tell they do not get along with each other. Mm-hmm. This is really just another example of the urban-world divide tearing North Carolina apart. Fayetteville coming in, trying to steal, trying to the steal fried from chicken Hill. from Rose Hill, you know, mm-hmm. bullying the small little town off I-40. Mm-hmm. Sad. All right. Uh, fried chicken. Sad exclamation point. <laughs> yeah. Fried chicken in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, and that... It's already not living anymore, so I, I don't know what could happen to that. I suppose the uh, something could happen to the bill. All right, uh, Craig, who's your headliner of the week? Well, first of all, I'm getting a little tired of following Colin's humorous <laughs> selection. We should end week. with Colin. <laughs> I mean, there's like no way to be serious after Colin spends five minutes talking about his nomination. No offense, but uh, uh, I'm sitting here biding time while I'm trying. I am going to pick HB2 this week. I was going to pick uh, Dan Forrest, but as we were sitting here discussing that issue during our podcast, I thought, you know, it's. I think it's safe to say that Dan Forrest is a uh, candidate for governor uh, in four years, and that made me think, are we going to be stuck with HB2 or its implications for another four years? I mean... Roy Cooper uh, was elected with a huge amount of money from uh, interest opposed to uh, HB2, and uh, Dan Dan Forrest represents the other side. So it just sets up an interesting scenario that if this doesn't go away, you know they'll be campaigning in another couple years. We'll still be dome casting about HB2 in 2020 yeah. uh, election and, time. And don't read any. I'm not condoning or uh, con- or, or uh, condemning or. Uh, you know, no, I'm not putting a curse on HB2. <laughs> no opinion. <laughs> we just don't necessarily want to be talking about it yeah, in four years stop, from now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Will, who's your headliner of the week? 
Uh, I'm going to go with Linda McMahon, a North Carolina native, an ECU pirate, and Donald Trump's new uh, small business administrator. Um, she's one of many North Carolinians with uh, posts in the Trump administration now. Our colleague Rob, Rob Christensen wrote a pretty interesting co- uh, column looking into all of them. She's kind of the most high-profile one, and um, you know, people who've been in North Carolina for a while will probably recognize uh the word small business administration. That's the same job that Erskine Bowles had uh, before using that to uh, launch himself into being Bill Clinton's uh, chief of staff and ultimately, uh, you know, the president of the UNC system, uh, you know, then later the the Bowles-Simpson committee, uh, you know, and so it seems like a pretty minor post, but clearly it uh, it doesn't have to be minor and can be a, you know, stepping, stepping stone to bigger things. So I don't know if... Uh, you know, wrestling entrepreneur Linda McMahon is looking into any of those bigger roles or if she is just happy with, you know, the small business thing, but it could be something to keep an eye on. Okay. And she was there uh, with uh, her family at the, uh, you know, swearing in or whatever it was where they were taking the, you know, photos and uh, um, there was people who know something about wrestling, which I do not and won't try. Uh, pointing out all the, uh, the the connections there, I think uh, maybe Triple H is that uh, is that a person? <laughs> I, I he heard that one he of, was he there. Was yeah. her son-in-law, I think. <laughs> anyway, I'm probably going to mangle that, but uh, <laughs> it's just an interesting scene that you don't always see in the White House. Um, so uh, Linda McMahon in the hat for headliner of the week, along with HB2 and uh, a fried chicken. Uh, and I think uh, I think I'll have to go with Linda McMahon uh, this week. Uh, she is the only human that was nominated. Yeah, she, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> a year old bill, a year old law, and uh, and a uh, food. Uh, uh, so it's not not exactly a uh, huge huge win for her, but uh, she does triumph. Come out of the ring uh, triumphant. Uh, and since uh, so much of our politics these days uh, seems like professional wrestling, I feel like it's appropriate to have uh, have her as our uh, as our headliner of the week this week. So uh, everybody, come back next week uh, for another Domecast. And thanks a lot for listening. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.